This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we hope you'll join us for a bit of a fiesta already filled with good memories. We're celebrating 200 programs for Latin Pulse with a look back at audience favorites from the past four and a half years. But first, Natalie Ottinger brings us back to the present with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. In a surprise diplomatic move, the new president of Argentina held a meeting with the British Prime Minister this week. Both countries have had tense relations during the government of President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, and the countries have had chilly relations since the UK triumphed over Argentina in a war over the Falkland Islands in the 1980s. Mauricio Macri, the new president of Argentina, used the World Economic Summit in Switzerland as an opportunity to reach out to David Cameron of the UK. During the open part of the meeting, Cameron said he was interested in discussing opportunities that would help business in both countries. I think there's quite a lot of issues where we can make a lot of progress. And obviously we want to help um, with the economic situation in Argentina. We're very interested in your reform plans and plans to fight corruption. Cameron also made it clear that the Falklands would remain a British overseas territory and there would be no negotiations on their status. The Falklands are located in the South Atlantic, about 300 miles from Argentina's coast. A judge in Brazil has ordered the suspension of further construction on the controversial Bayo Monchi Dam project in the Amazon. The judge says the construction and energy firms connected to the dam have not provided the promised compensation and protection to the indigenous communities during the building process. Although only partially completed, the dam is already flooding parts of the Xingu River Valley, where indigenous people lived or held sacred. The dam was about to test its new turbines when the judge ordered the suspension. This is not the first time the dam has had its construction license suspended by a judge. The Brazilian government still hopes construction will be complete in three years to alleviate chronic power outages during summer months. We'll be hearing more about the project later on this program. Brazil's economic crisis is cutting into preparations for this year's Summer Olympics, set to be held in Rio de Janeiro. The Brazilian organizers of the Olympics have been negotiating with the International Olympic Committee about trimming the $7 billion budget. Some sports, like volleyball or kayaking, will now have reduced space for spectators or no formal seating at all in some cases. Last year, organizers also removed air conditioning in the Olympic Village as a way to cut the budget, calling it a luxury. Economists predict Brazil's recession will only deepen this year and may become an economic depression. Mexico's infamous cartel leader, Joaquin El Chapo Shorty Guzman, bragged recently to actor Sean Penn that he's the world's most successful drug dealer. But he and Penn have proven recently they're also pretty good at selling something else. Shirts. 
El Chapo apparently likes silk shirts from the California clothing company called Barabbas. The drug lord is pictured meeting with Penn in a blue shirt from the company in a photo for the exclusive interview Penn wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. Well, in the past few weeks, the company reports it can't stock enough of the blue shirt with the same pattern as the one worn by El Chapo. They're sold out. No word on whether Mexican officials are letting El Chapo wear his silks in the maximum security prison where he's staying now. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. And welcome to our retrospective fiesta as we celebrate our 200th program, producing Latin Pulse as an online radio program. Some may not know that Latin Pulse began as a cable television program on Link TV, but eventually went on hiatus and, in cooperation with Link TV, our production team revived the program in 2011. Although we have many more weekly listeners now, some of the audience's favorite programs, your favorites, come from our first two seasons back online. So this week we have highlights from those programs, topics that include religion, Colombia's long-running civil war, and that controversial dam project, the Bayo Manchi Dam. But first, we head back to 2012 and an interview we conducted with Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. We spoke to her about the startling statistics regarding unauthorized immigration and how much the Obama administration was spending on security to patrol the U.S. border with Mexico. So migrants, we're at a 40-year low for illegal immigration. Uh, First time we're seeing actually migration move backwards toward Mexico Mm -hmm. and Central America since the Depression in the 1930s. So why is there a need for that? I think that was one of the big conclusions we saw is that migration certainly has dropped to levels not seen since the 1970s. And if you look at effectiveness then of the the border buildup, particularly with the Border Patrol, what we found is you really get to the point now where you're any more um, Border Patrol agents that you deploy are going to face the issue of diminishing returns. Our kind of calculation said that right now, any a Border Patrol agent detains about apprehends about 20 migrants a year. It's maybe one every two weeks. It's pretty low, and and it leads to the question of is it really necessary? To these these calls. Um, particularly from border states and border governors, of we need to have more border patrol agents, we need to have more to secure the border, when what you're looking at is in terms of effectiveness, adding more personnel really isn't, I think, going to produce the expected results because the migration levels are certainly dropping. What we did find, though, is what isn't necessarily dropping is drugs. And if you look at the, the flow of drugs crossing the border, they're still at constant levels or may have even increased. So that's one of the other issues that the Border Patrol should be looking at between the ports of entry, they're still crossing. And so that puts into question, too, of how much is it a deterrent for for drug traffickers, the fact that you have a bigger, bigger presence of security apparatus on the border. Let me work on the other side of that particular criticism. Uh, We see probably the biggest drug war ever going on right now in Mexico, in these border states, the northern Mexican states, couldn't you argue that those security forces are keeping that war from moving into Arizona, moving into Texas? That was one thing we did look at was spillover violence. And, and I think across the board, what we found is that it really isn't occurring uh, at the levels that it's actually basically non-existent in most of the, the states, probably with the exception of East Texas. And that was one area of the study that we haven't been able to you know, cover. And we, we geographically, we didn't get to look at very much. And that's where you know, the border states with Tamaulipas and Coahuila in Mexico, where you do see perhaps a little bit more of spillover violence. But across the board, we found, and, and FBI statistics would show that 
border communities are safer now than they were years, 10 years ago. Violent crime rates are down. So the idea of spillover really isn't necessarily happening. One thing that we did hear on that, too, is the, the drug trafficking organizations themselves want to avoid the level of violence that they would see in Mexico in the United States because it could provoke a closure of the ports of entry. And the ports of entry close and they lose a lot of business because in spite of the drugs that cross between the ports of entry, a good amount, probably the main amount, cross through the ports. And so anytime you close the ports down, they're losing millions of dollars. So it's not to the cartel's advantage to have that spillover violence. They want to keep it in Mexico. They don't want to get the U.S. too engaged in this. They want to keep it in Mexico. They don't want to have the things that would threaten their profits, I think, in the United States. It doesn't say that there aren't you know, cases of violence, but I think overall it's more in their interest. They would prefer to just keep that on the Mexico Mexico side of the border. And and that is certainly an alarming issue. And, and we do look in the study at what does the impact of that security in these border cities have on migrants, particularly migrants that are being deported into, from the United States into border towns, sometimes in the middle of the night, in areas that are pretty unsafe. Well, the Mexican government doesn't have total control of well, some people argue 50% of the country at this particular point. So this is an issue. It, it, it certainly is, and I think it's an issue of one area looked at, what is the, the humanitarian impact of the, the border security buildup on migrants? What has it meant for migrants that you have such a security presence between you know, increased fencing, increased agents, increased technology, drones, et cetera? And I think one thing we, or a few things we found is, one, migrants are crossing in more remote areas. The, if you look at the, the particularly in Arizona, the statistics, and that's probably the, the state that has the highest number of migrant deaths per year. Deaths last year actually dropped, but if you compare deaths per 100,000 apprehensions, they're actually increasing. And so that would suggest that migrants are being pushed into more and more remote areas of the border, but they're also becoming more and more contact with drug trafficking organizations. And I think that is the area where we've seen particularly given the expansion of organized crime in Mexico, a real kind of fusion in a lot of cases of drug trafficking organizations working with migrant smugglers or migrant smugglers being incorporated into organized criminal structures or being forced, almost in a sense, to work within the network of organized crime to be able to to smuggle migrants into the United States. So what are the suggestions that come out of your report? What are you recommending? This is a good time to stop and look at what the impact of the buildup has been where could more resources be used or not? I think we said particularly ports of entry are an area that's probably neglected in terms of where a lot of illicit goods flow and, and where you don't have the same level of resources as you do for the Border Patrol, for example. Another um, issue that we were concerned about is you look at what is the role of the U.S. military on the border, which has traditionally had a more counter-narcotics role, but then we had the deployment of the National Guard in two different um, stages in the past few years, to as response to calls, particularly from border states, if we need more presence. Moving away from immigration, one topic audience members seem to like a lot was discussion of the Civil War in Colombia, a conflict that has dragged on for more than 51 years and claimed at least 220,000 lives. This week, Colombia's president pardoned 30 members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, as the government tries to conclude peace negotiations with the rebel group. Back in 2012, before the peace talks officially began, Jimena Sanchez of WOLA talked to us about the effects of the war on Colombia's indigenous communities. There are approximately 102 ethnic groupings in Colombia of indigenous people. They make up only about 1.5% of the total population. However, 
Among those groupings, there are 34 that are at risk of becoming physically and culturally extinct in coming years. The rate at which indigenous people have been becoming extinct as people has shot up in the last 10 years in Colombia and has worsened basically starting under the President Uribe administration and has not gotten much better under the Santos administration. One of the reasons for this is the continuing armed conflict that's going on in Colombia, the longest civil war in in the currently ongoing in, in the hemisphere. And uh, some of the problem that we've talked about is also has to do with the drug war, which is intermixed with this conflict. Unfortunately, indigenous groups in Colombia have been subjected to all the negative possibilities of internal armed conflict and violence. So on the one hand, um, they suffer from displacement, massacres, killings, and other violent attacks, including landmines in their territories put by the various different uh, armed groups, uh, both the legal and illegal armed groups commit violations of international humanitarian law and human rights in indigenous territories. Um, at the same time, narco-traffickers that are at, in certain cases allied with the illegal armed groups of the rebels and the right-wing paramilitaries that still exist in Colombia um, use some of the indigenous territories to grow coca, and that leads to both violence from the groups directly against the indigenous people as well as violence and negative consequences of the anti-narcotics policies, many of whom funded by the United States in Colombia. One of the worst offending policies uh, against the cultural uh, integrity and physical integrity of indigenous people is the aerial fumigation program, which is financed by the United States, whereby uh, U.S. contractors buy planes above areas where coca is thought to be grown, and they dumped herbicides um, randomly into those areas. Unfortunately, the herbicides don't always hit just the coca, but they hit absolutely everything else. So schools, water, uh, the food crops of the individuals in that area, and it basically burns everything that it hits. And indigenous people are dependent on uh, the waterways, the natural waterways, so they drink that water that is polluted with the herbicide. And uh, you often see that indigenous people get skin rashes and that some of the children and others suffer uh, consequences of this poison being uh, fumigated in their territories. And, and what sort of consequences beyond the rashes that you mentioned? Illnesses such as diarrhea and other ailments. Um, and basically beyond the actual health effects of, of those direct causes, which the U.S. government and Colombian government say is something that can't be proven, although um, indigenous people themselves have documented these cases. Um, you have the situation where their food crops are completely destroyed, and as a result, they must either become displaced or move into another area, sometimes a hostile area controlled by an illegal armed group, in order to survive. And so this is a very um, irrational policy because on the one hand, coca cultivation continues to be robust in Colombia and um, cocaine production remains robust. And what this uh, fumigation policy does is just disperse the coca 
and leads the narco traffickers to break it up into smaller pieces. So what used to be a country that was where the coca cultivation was very much um, concentrated in the southern departments and some of the north is now found throughout the entire territory. And more and more, um, the coca cultivation finds itself in the more remote areas. And those are the areas where the indigenous and Afro-descendants people lives. And those are the most biodiverse areas of the country. And so you have this um, policy that is irrational, is not leading to a decrease in coca production or cocaine trafficking to the United States, and is severely damaging to these vulnerable groups, indigenous peoples that have been living in these areas for, you know, generations. Is this also pushing those groups into cultivation of the coca if they can't grow their own crops? Um, Usually uh, with indigenous people, there is a very strong uh, belief that uh, aside from coca that is cultivated for traditional purposes, and some of the groups have traditional ceremonies or true coca on a daily basis and traditional purposes, that coca grown for other purposes is not something that they do or that they're interested in. One footnote to that discussion. Last year, the Colombian government curtailed the aerial fumigation program after the World Health Organization released a study saying an ingredient in the herbicide used in the program could cause cancer. As we heard earlier on the program, another controversial issue that listeners have tracked is the Bayomanchi Dam project in Brazil. We've interviewed Eve Bratman at American University several times about the project. Here are excerpts from our discussion from 2012. I was at the dam site from June until July of this past summer. And while I was there, there were protests in the lead up to the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. These were protests organized by the Movimento Xingu Vivos Pra Sempre, which is the main social movement organization that's in opposition to the dam. But it was in conjunction with... um, the Belém Comité Xingu Vivo, as well as uh, a number of student groups and International Rivers Network and Amazon Watch and uh, multiple other NGOs that were participating in, in bringing in people who were concerned about the dam's construction from literally all over the world. There were participants from Turkey who are also being affected by dams in their region, as well as um, from Israel, from Austria, myself from the United States, and plenty of locals there. For people don't know, this dam project will, if it's successful, will build the third largest dam in the world. But it has some impacts on the local indigenous communities and other communities. Yeah, in fact, the effects are principally on the, the urban population in a city called Altamira, which, which these days has a population of about 100,000 people. And of that 100,000, 20,000 are anticipated to be displaced. This is one of the stories that's not being talked about as much in the, the traditional news because of the appeal of, of questioning indigenous people and their likelihood of being displaced. So just to clarify, indigenous people will be affected by the dam. Their rivers will, um, will have worse fishing and undoubtedly their transportation, which is primarily river-based, will be affected. Um, the social effects are, are, of course, also appalling for these indigenous tribes, which increasingly, as they voice their opposition to the dam, are being essentially bought off by promises of getting new motorcycles and more money for their community. You've given us a wider context about where this problem is and the greater group of people that it affects. Why hasn't that been given as much coverage? I think the media is 
most attracted to the stories that have the most colorful appeal, which is only natural. And telling the story of the urban residents that are going to be displaced by this dam is, is a little bit um, more complicated and, and far less colorful than telling the story of Indigenous peoples. And in fact, the Indigenous peoples have been, uh, have a stronger case in the legal system. So the current contestation over the dam that's in the courts is all about the right to free prior and informed consent from the Indigenous groups. Coming up, we're about done discussing politics on our retrospective program. Now it's on to religion. We'll cover both Santeria and the Mexican folk saint, Santa Muerte. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, we caught up with Michael Atwood Mason, the director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, about Santeria and the Feast of San Lazaro in Cuba. But back in 2012, we asked him to introduce our audience to the basics of Santeria. Here's an excerpt from that discussion. This is a tradition that's very much alive and that many people enter, whether they're born into it or whether they join the tradition, and it becomes a, a real sense of vitality, a real sense, a real source of vitality in their lives. Santeria as its own thing, Lukumia religion as its own thing evolves, is incredibly complicated. It happens over 500 years. There are waves of influences at different times. You know, the spiritism that's kind of now completely a part of the tradition only arrived in Cuba in probably the 1850s or the 1860s, so it's a relatively new thing. Um, on the other hand, there are very old strands that run through the religion that continue to be very much alive, and, and when a, a, a powerfully kind of influential and charismatic leader from that tradition appears, those, those traditions can be revitalized in very interesting and dramatic ways. And some of those are, are you know, there's there's a an Arara movement that's coming uh, that's that's reemerging in a very powerful way right now, uh, in large part because there's this incredibly dynamic, socially smart, uh, culturally informed, and dynamic guy uh, who's leading the movement. <laughs> that 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 kind of thing happens all the time. So it's it, to just kind of focus on Catholicism. Is he leading seems, the movement in Cuba, in the United States? Where, where is this he's, coming he's, from? He's located in, in Havana, but he has ties to Matanzas City, um, and he, he has godchildren all over the world. Can you tell us a little bit about what the appeal is of this religion globally? Sure, that's a great question, and it's a question that people ask over and over again. And I, there's not a single answer to that, but... I think it's useful to think about a whole variety of things that the religion offers to people. For many people, it's a, it's a, about legacy and about family and about tradition. In, of course, in Afro-Cuban families, there, there are many people who every ancestor that they know was involved in the religion. That's one kind of very deep relationship to, to the tradition, which is, which is beautiful and, and quite important for those people. 
I guess the other thing that I think is really important to think about is the fact that this is a, a religion that focuses on nature and the, that focus on nature is very important for a lot of people in the tradition precisely because we're experiencing this massive environmental upheaval at this moment and so acknowledging the power of nature in people's lives is something that the religion does quite well and I think that resonates quite broadly. In what you just talked about deals with animism and so I'm, I'm really wondering about the animistic roots of Santeria. Well, I'm not sure I would call it animism. Um, I guess I would skew that term because it's such a problematic and historically loaded term. Uh, Santeria conceives of a, a whole variety of forces that can be seen in the outer world, in nature, in the social world, in certain kinds of phenomena like kingship, like motherhood, uh, like romance. Finally, when discussing religion, we have discussed the controversial folk saint Santa Muerte from Mexico several times on this program. Here's our excerpt from our initial interview with Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University, conducted via Skype from Richmond, Virginia. Chestnut is the author of Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, the skeleton saint. Yes, Santa Muerte is a folk saint, meaning that she's not a canonized Catholic saint whose cult has been mushrooming in the past decade, uh, essentially from 2001, 2002, to the point that in less than uh, 10 years, she now has millions of followers, both in Mexico, her home country, and here in the United States as well. She is uh, basically, if you look at her, she's basically represented as a female version of the Grim Reaper. In fact, in my, my recently published book, Devoted to Death, I refer to her as the Grim Reapress. Why would someone want to honor this image, this icon? What is her power? Her, I would say it's, it's actually her powers. And, and I think that one of the greatest explanations for her astronomical popularity is her ability to multitask, to uh, grant miracles on, on multiple fronts. And so one of, the, one of the miracles, one of the hats she wears is as a narco saint, um, protecting many of the drug cartel members in Mexico. But at the same time, she's also an incredible uh, healer. Many of the people who go to her main shrine in the rough-and-tumble barrio of Tepito in Mexico City are looking f to be healed of the various afflictions that are usually related to, to poverty uh, in, in urban Mexico. So she's a healer. She's also a, uh, a lawyer, a divine lawyer for those who are imprisoned, incarcerated in Mexico. And so she's... Uh, in the spirit of the time, she's a uh, incredible, incredibly potent multitasker. Is she a real outgrowth of the drug war, or is there a different origin? Her, the rise in her cult corresponds and is somewhat related to the drug wars, but uh, I would say that the genesis is, is separate. She actually goes back to Spanish colonial times in Mexico, uh, and as a result of Spanish Catholic evangelization of the indigenous, so uh, she had existed clandestinely 
basically as in a figure of the occult in Mexico going back to Spanish colonial times. But it is true that her astronomical growth and her going from being a figure of the occult to now a public, very much public cult does correlate to the rise in the narco industry in Mexico. So you're telling us that she's 600 years old or, or older as far as her, <laughs> her representation in Mexico. Yeah, I, I, I argue in the book that essentially she is the Mexican version of the European Grim Reaper. Again, the Spanish Catholic Church brings over the figure of the Grim Reaper. In fact, in Spain, she was a female figure called La Parca, or the Parched One. They bring her over to the New World as a tool of evangelization of the indigenous people. And, of course, indigenous people interpret Christianity through their own cultural lens and end up kind of taking her as a saint uh, in, in her own right. So the genesis really is this confusion of the European Grim Reaper uh, and by the indigenous people here and kind of converting her into, into what she is today, a folk saint. Thanks for joining us for our 200th program, a retrospective of audience favorites. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin-Pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin-Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, Associate Producer Natalie Oninger and Technical Director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music